IS jihadists returning to the UK. Can MI5 keep track? Iran versus Saudi Arabia. Is this the start of a third war in the Middle East? Will Labour's new shadow defence minister try to bin Trident? What I want to do is to have an open review. I want to have it looking out to the public. I want to hear what people have to say. And has Kim Jong-un joined the nuclear major league? Exactly a year ago today, news bulletins were interrupted with the words, we are getting reports of a terrorist shooting in Paris. As the day developed, it was confirmed that ISIS gunmen had slaughtered staff at the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. I'm joined today by Professor Andrew Silk, Programme Director for Terrorism Studies at the University of East London, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Christopher, the attack on the Charlie Hebdo office was more than a terrorist action. At the time, if you remember, that um, as far as the public is concerned, terrorists that we were fighting at such a level were people like Taliban. There had been al-Qaeda. Um, and the, the whole image of, uh, of ISIS, which was relatively new, were things like beheadings, but in the desert, etc. What was happening here is a realisation of the public that ISIS was now what the military call out of area. It had moved into a whole new new way of doing things. It also changed images, and that again is from the public's perception, who were almost sort of used to the idea of bombings, whether it be the terrible bombings on, on tube trains and buses or whatever. These were two guys armed to the teeth with uh, small weapons who went in and committed the slaughter. So it's out of area and a new image in the public mind which is completed by November in, in, in what happened in Paris. Professor Silke, hard to say, but these attacks on Paris triumphs, I suppose, in the eyes of the terrorists. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, the uh, Paris attacks would be seen as highly successful. Um, even if the, um, the terrorists themselves all end up either dead or in prison, the, the media attention they receive is enormous. And, and from a terrorist perspective, that's exactly what they're hoping to achieve. An awful lot of attention. Um, and almost regardless of what happens, if you have the media focused on you for um, a couple of days, then uh, that, that's a huge success. Mm. Does that in some way go to explaining, Christopher, this week, this, uh, this latest video released by IS, getting the attention, was an act of desperation to actually uh, get some attention, having this British-speaking accented person uh, carrying on, on talking as he did? Well, you know, all, all, all appearances, personal appearances like that are going to get attention because you know, ignorance will, will provide that attention. The ignorance of knowing who is it and what if it is, is another phase, this is, replaces jihadi, John, all that sort of thing is going to work. It doesn't actually change the power of ISIS. It doesn't change what are the operational details of trying to counter ISIS or any other terrorist group. Uh, and really, in, in public terms, you look at the sort of public relations, uh, public uh, opinion figures, uh, stuff that's done by Mori, uh, uh, Ipsos Mori, for example, the British public, anyway, didn't take much notice of it because it was almost as if it was, it was suspected. But the thing that caught people's imagination was the tragedy, or so it was seen, of this five- or six-year-old boy was included in that image. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Silk, with regard to the French situation, to what extent is the threat intensified against the French, given the colonial history with the French in Algeria and Morocco? Well, 
traditionally France's problems have come from uh, the former colonies and especially from Algeria and when Algeria descended into chaos in the 1990s there was a spillover into France as a result of that. Um, I think a lot of analysts have been surprised that the French domestic problem hasn't been worse over the last 10 years, that um, there's a very large uh, Muslim population in France, there were known to be a lot of issues in terms of integration and, 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 and how um, happy that population was. Um, and yet, compared to the UK and Spain and some, and some other European countries, the French seem to have a, a much less of a problem. But I think that's changed now, and, and there, there's a real sense that uh, um, Islamist extremism within France is now, in a sense, caught up with other countries, and they're experiencing the, the type of problems and the type of radicalization that was uh, uh, the UK, for example, has been dealing with for much longer. And on the subject of the UK, MI5 now suggesting a steady migration of jihadis from Syria back to the UK, given the resources of British intelligence um, and the services, do, do these people simply disappear when they arrive back on UK shores? Some of them do. Um, the current estimates are that about 400 people who travelled to Syria have now returned. And we know that most of these people actually, that they're they're coming back without any intention of being violent. Um, some of them are, are how do you, back. How do we know that? Well, this is from uh, research which has been carried out on, on returnees from other conflicts and returnees who have come forward here. So we know that 85% of them aren't uh, going to be dangerous in, in that term. And it's about 15% who are still keen and who are still committed. And those are the ones that we're worried about. Now, of the 400, some of them, uh, we are aware of them, and, and, and they were detected when they attempted to, to come back. And some of those people are in prison. Prison isn't appropriate for all of them. Um, it isn't necessary for all of them. And uh, the ones that we're aware of, uh, it is possible to monitor them and it's possible to, to try and put some of those people on de-radicalization programs. It'll be the people who've slipped through the net and who we aren't aware about um, that are of more concern. But again, what I would say there is, is about 85% of those people aren't going to be focused on, on, on trying to carry out a terrorist attack. It'll be the 15% that we need to worry about. One of the problems here, uh, or is illustrated here, it's not new. If you take round about towards the end of last year that uh, one of the agencies involved, the security service, had an operational staff of somewhere, let's say, between 1900 and 2040, 2045 or so, um, those people, uh, whether they're the pavement people out on the streets, etc., working with, for example, the police uh, counter-terrorism operations, They've got to go on leave, they've got to go on holidays, they've got to have days off, they've got to go on training courses, etc. And so your, your actual operational, continuous operation staff that is trying to count these people is, is relatively small. And if you, for example, I mean, it's taken on, on a sort of a simple case. If you've got somebody in mind, you've got somebody you're supposed to be watching, it's not one person that can do that watching. You probably got a. Uh, you probably got some like a dozen, twenty people get involved in having to watch it because of changing shifts. What the others are doing, some of the doing monitoring, uh, some of the doing actually uh, gathering of human intelligence and all sorts of things like that. And so it's the it's in spite of the amount of money that the chancellor has brought up to put into uh, MI5, for example, and all the services GCHQ, um, the resources are considerably smaller. Then Are they enough, Professor Silk? Well, it's a good, it's a good issue. And I, I think if, if we look at a, uh, one element of it, if, if we look at the number of people in prison who are in there as a result of terrorism-related um, offences or, or issues, and there has been 
and that was stable for many years between about 2005 up until about 2013 at about 110 or so prisoners and, and but there's been a spike and that spike is almost entirely down to Syria people trying to travel to Syria and people connected to ISIS and so we're seeing an increase there and so I, I think it is fair to say that the system is under more strain now than it was let's say three four years ago um, but it, Historically, MI5, uh, the police, and the other agencies um, are at you know near record numbers in terms in, in terms of dealing with this. Would they like more? Yes, uh, every organisation would like to have more. But there are a lot of resources available. Um, I think the the issue will, or one of the key issues is, how is the the problem going to develop? Is it going to get worse? Is it, or have we reached the peak yet in terms of uh, mm. uh, interest in Syria or not? Or is that still lying ahead of us? Um, and also, what will be the impact if something does happen in the UK? Um, and, mm. and what will be the wider consequences of that? To be continued, let's talk about this again. Uh, Professor Andrew Silk, Programme Director for Terrorism Studies at the University of East London. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, the execution of 47 alleged terrorists, all Shiites by the Sunni government of Saudi Arabia, has enraged the Ayatollahs of Iran, a Shiite state. Today, the Iranians claim that its embassy in the Yemeni capital has been attacked by Saudi warplanes. This comes after Iranians set fire to the Saudi embassy in Tehran. Christopher, considering both countries have been fighting each other in a proxy war, are we now seeing the start of an all-out war between the two? I think no. I don't think that will happen at all. And one of the reasons it won't happen is that these two countries have plenty of opportunities to do this and they have not. Also, they're very much involved in what's going on in the Middle East. They're all t tied up with that. It will also be very, very difficult, difficult for them militarily to actually, to, actually, to actually do it. Remember this, however, one lot are Shiites, that's the Iranians. The Sunnis are Saudis. Um, they, when we talk about proxy wars, it means that we have been getting, or they have been getting into other wars where they're fighting people that are on the on different sides. So you fight, uh, let's say, against a, a President Assad at the moment, if you're a Sunni, and if you're a Saudi Arabian. Um, but the the Shias, who are the Iranians, are on uh, President Assad's side. So therefore, you've got a war going between the two of you without actually declaring war, but I don't think it's going to go any further than this. Mm. And the crucial point, of course, is that the biggest customer for those two countries is America. So uh, given the situation at the moment, whatever it may, may transpire as a result of this latest uh, bombing, etc., do you think it's going to have a big impact on America's efforts to influence its allies, Iran and Saudi Arabia, to bring about a peace in, in Syria? Well, I mean, if you want to have a, a, a peace conference, for example, to discuss the possibility of even getting representatives from the, the Syrians uh, into a conference centre like Vienna, you're going to have great problems because you're not quite sure whether the Saudis uh, and, and the Iranians will actually turn up at the table. At the moment, the answer is no, they probably wouldn't turn up. But let's come back in six months' time and see them talking again. Still to come, the new Shadow Defence Secretary tells us her initial plans for Labour's policy review on Trident. And North Korea's Big Bang, was it as big as the beloved leader said it was? This is BFBS SITREP. The biggest shake-up in armed forces pay in 15 years has been announced by the Defence Secretary. Michael Fallon says the new model will provide a modern, simple and credible pay structure that he hopes will attract and retain motivated people. James Hurst is at the Ministry of Defence. 
This is the biggest shake-up of armed forces pay in 15 years, coming into effect from the 1st of April this year for all ranks up to one star, so equivalent to Brigadier, Commodore and Air Commodore. So uh, many tens of thousands of people across the armed forces will be affected by these changes. The Ministry of Defence say it is due to make things both simpler and fairer. Simpler, they say, because people will move from potentially 128 different pay paths onto just four different pay paths and fairer because they say it'll end things, uh, much criticised actually aspects of the last pay reform, uh, like flip-flopping where people could actually see themselves promoted and as a result fall in pay. Well I have been speaking to uh, one of the people in charge of this reform of defence pay, uh, the Chief of Defence People, Lieutenant General Andrew Gregory, and I asked him to explain a bit more about what will be changing. The model uh, that we're announcing today, 90% uh, of the pay is based around rank because that remains at the heart of the military structure. And on top of that, the final 10% is uh, put into four what we've called trade supplements that are based around job evaluation. Uh, it is much simpler because previously in Pay 2000 we had what was known as the high and low pay bands for other ranks and because they were, uh, you could either be in high or low band depending upon your rank, there were some very complicated journeys. So we've got a simpler model based on rank with four supplements, so actually there are only four different ways you can move through the pay uh, structure during your career. Inevitably, when things change, people look at it and go, there will be winners and losers. Will, will people actually find they, their pay is reduced by this? Nobody will find their pay is reduced. That is really important. And uh, the majority of people, over two-thirds of service personnel, will find they have a gain when they move onto the new model. For those who would otherwise find their pay reducing, they will be put under pay protection, they will uh, maintain their pay, they will get the government's pay award uh, based on the Armed Forces Pay Review Body recommendations. Nobody will lose money. That was Lieutenant General Andrew Gregory talking to James Hurst there. Christopher, why have they done it? Just bit, too complicated, was it? Well, the old system wasn't actually sort of um, the horse's breakfast, quite frankly. Um, and it was done... Uh, where are we? Back at 2000, when everything was changing, everybody had to have a new system. And the new system was simply far too complicated. Also, it, it threw up these anomalies that, for example, you could be working... It's, it's, not, it's not an exact example, but, for example, you work in a submarine, get promoted out of a submarine to do a desk job at Collingwood or somewhere like that, and find you losing your submarine pay. Mm. And therefore, there were these changes. What they have done now, and said, let's go back to basics. And you have to remember the basics of this. The basics are the Armed Forces Pay Review Board, which is an independent body. And so there you start with the basic recommendation. Then you have simply four ways of getting paid... Um, and, for example, um, if you're on the Special Forces, you get Special Forces pay. If you're a pilot, uh, which the services call a professional aviator as opposed to some people are pilots without being professionals in it. So there are, there are very few uh, sort of exceptions to this. So you know where you're going, and if you get promoted, uh, you ain't going to lose any money. So in 15 seconds, will people be generally satisfied by today's announcement? If 
they get the right instruction in this. I think the most important thing is that uh, you, you've got to have, uh, people have got to have an explanation of what's happened. Then they'll be satisfied they're not being cheated. The new shallow defence secretary insists she'll be open-minded in her review of Labour's stance on Trident. But critics say Emily Thornberry's been appointed to rubber stamp Jeremy Corbyn's opposition to renewing it. Our reporter Dan Freeman's been speaking to her. I voted against the renewal of Trident in, I can't remember when it was, was it 2006 or 2007? Um, I have to say, my mother went to Greenham Common. I, I didn't go with her because at that stage I thought that it was it was right and appropriate and necessary for us to have nuclear weapons. But I think as time has gone on, we're now in the 21st century, I think that the threats which our country has to face are very different to the ones that we had to face in the 20th century. And I think that the amount of money involved, you know, we talk about, I think, £100 billion possibly being invested in that. I'm not sure that that's the right thing for us to be doing. Um, I think that we do... I mean, I'll be doing the review with, with Ken. And what I want to do is to have an open review. I want to have it looking out to the public. I want to hear what people have to say about what, what should our priorities be, what are the 21st century threats, and what should be the appropriate response, and what is Britain's role in the world now? Not 50 years ago, but now. You know, what is the best way for us to proceed as a country? And I do think that we need to work together on this, and I would really welcome hearing from people about what it is that they think that we should be doing. So, I mean, it is about Trident, but actually it's about a much wider review, a review of what's Britain's role in the world and how can we keep our, our people safe. How are you going to instill confidence in generals, troops, in the British forces, if you don't sign up to something that they all back and that those generals will hope to use as a last line of defence of this country? I think it's very interesting that you ask the question in that way because I also think that when you speak to people privately, um, retired generals, when you talk to, you know, I've spoken to many soldiers, people have been in touch with me already and have said that they think that the time has passed when we should be quite so absolutist about what the solutions are because it isn't a question of if we don't have Trident submarines, we will not be safe. Actually, they may well be answering a threat which has moved on. You know, there is a, there's a time, there was a time 50 years ago when you knew where your enemies lived, when you knew where your enemies were, but things have moved on. And I have to tell you, you know, the government are likely to have a vote on this this year, and, you know, it may be that the government, the government has a majority, that the government will get its own way. Now, if we come into power in 2020, we have to be pragmatic about the fact that a certain amount of money is likely to have already been spent, a certain amount of money will be committed to commissioning you know, various um, uh, nuclear weapons and submarines. And we should be thinking, we should sit back and we should say, we are not afraid to ask questions. We are not afraid to have fresh thinking. We're not afraid to be modern and we're not afraid to be 21st century in the way that we approach defence. But don't be under any misunderstanding. You know, the security of the British people is the most important thing. But if we get stuck in old-fashioned thinking, actually we may not end up being as safe as we might be. You know, why is it that we have fewer troops these days than Oliver Cromwell did? You know, does that make our country safer? 
does it make our country safer that we might be that we're going to have an aircraft carrier but won't have the aircraft for it for another three years? I mean, these are questions that the opposition should be asking, and I will be asking them. We need to have answers to those things, and we need to have a proper think about what it is that we're doing. That was Emily Thornberry, the new Shadow Defence Secretary. So, Christopher, when are you taking her out for dinner? Oh, Do you hear her? She says, uh, we've got fewer troops than Cromwell had in the Civil War. Well, Cromwell was on a horse. <laughs> and, he was, and as you know, that takes up a lot of uh, eating. How, how influential... And she means finding do? Charles... I mean, what rubbish. He was uh, eating... Uh, eating. He was, uh, he was finding Charles I. It's a totally different thing. And when she says... Come on, I'm, she's I'm, got the job. She's got the Shadow Defence Secretary she job. She ain't going to keep the job, though, is she? Well, she might. You never uh, know, She do might, you? but, you know... If 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 you believe, for example, um, that there's not going to be another, well, you have to believe there's not going to be another general election for four four and a half years, then the chances of her surviving, although it <coughs> does seem that the uh, leader of the opposition takes so long to change his cabinet, a uh, shadow cabinet, then she might well be there in four and a half years. Let's move on. The UN Security Council has agreed to draw up new sanctions against North Korea following its claim to have tested a hydrogen bomb. Nuclear experts have cast doubt on that, but geologists say they did detect a man-made earthquake. Well, let's talk to Timothy Stafford, who's a research analyst on proliferation and nuclear policy at the Royal United Services Institute. Good to talk to you today, uh, Timothy. What's the difference? Let's talk about physics, say. What's the difference between a hydrogen bomb and an atomic bomb? Yes, of course. An atomic bomb, which is what the North Koreans have already perfected, is where you essentially split an atom as part of a nuclear explosion and, and detonate a blast. Uh, what the North Koreans have claimed that they've produced with, in terms of a hydrogen uh, bomb is to fuse multiple atoms together and set off a blast within them, which sets off a larger chain reaction and a much more devastating explosion. Now, whenever North Korean officials make statements of, of what they've achieved, it's always a good idea to keep uh, a certain amount of scepticism because the North Koreans have a tendency of exaggerating what they've actually achieved. So do you believe them? I don't, actually. I think that this is, this is partly politics. There's, there's a, a classic North Korean approach to these things, which is whenever tests are conducted, uh, there's always a much stronger claim. And subsequently, when organizations, intelligence experts, analysts, uh, monitoring stations possessed by the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization actually measure the seismology, they find that the North Koreans have, have greatly exaggerated what's, what's, what they've actually achieved. Now, it's, it's likely that the North Koreans have made some advances uh, from the, the tests that they conducted in 2013. But at the moment, the best indications are that the, the test that was conducted uh, in the last couple of days is broadly similar to, to that test and therefore not dramatically larger in scope. It has been enough uh, for the Asian minister, Hugo Swire, to summon the uh, North Korean ambassador to London, uh, Mr. Haiyan Hakbong, to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office today. Um, Christopher, um, if it wasn't a hydrogen bomb, what made the Earth move? Uh, well, it made it, made it move because the, uh, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty uh, Organization said they monitored a 4.9 uh, rattle, if you like, of the Earth. Um, the uh, other people have said it's up to 5.1. If you look at the previous tests, the 213, 209, 206, I mean, they start at 4.3, 4.7, and then 5.1. All smaller type of, uh, of weapons. The important bit of this um, is, well, there are two points, but why would he say that it was a hydrogen bomb? Maybe he told his guys, listen, I want a hydrogen bomb, I want the Big Bang. And they said, OK, we'll do it, boss. Hmm. Uh, and he actually believes they've done it. Or 
uh, they actually have done something like this. And if they have, this would move the whole debate into a new, into a new area in as much as the hydrogen bomb is, you know, you can put it, make it smaller, you can deliver it much further, therefore, etc. But all it does then, of course, says it, well, it's actually joined the club. Mm. It's joined the club because every other country that possesses uh, nuclear, nuclear, nuclear weapons uh, possess hydrogen so, weapons. Uh, so, Timothy Stafford, uh, the UN Security Council's agreed to new sanctions against North Korea. How, how worried should the international community be about this? It should be concerned, I think, more for, for intentions than for material progress. I mean, the point that was just made is, is a valid one, that moving from an atomic bomb to a hydrogen bomb is a very significant step. But I think there are a couple of points to keep in mind. The first is, irrespective of the material progress that the North has made, the fact that North Korea is continuing to test against the wishes of almost every single country that has a stake in Northeast Asia essentially confirms that Pyongyang will not be persuaded to change course, and therefore the discussion has to move to how it can be compelled to change course. Now, the second point that I make is, the, whilst improvements in, in blast capability is one thing, it's actually not a tremendous game changer. The thing that we need to be concerned about more is the progress that the North Koreans are trying to make with regard to their missile program, because no matter once they've developed atomic or hydrogen weapons, the scary prospect is when those weapons can be delivered, either to, to the south, towards Japan, to Guam, where the US has military forces stationed, or even to, to the west coast of the United States if the North Koreans perfect a submarine launch ballistic missile program. So the point to keep in mind is, is not that necessarily this step is a, is a great game changer. But the fact that the North Koreans are on a path and are clearly not being dissuaded from, from changing that path, that takes them to a, a place that is greatly destabilising for international security in the fullness of time. And the other thing, of course, is there's actually nothing we can do about it. I was just reading uh, uh, Hugo Swires, the minister's uh, uh, statement, and he says at the end, I call on the North uh, Korean regime to act in the best interests of its people. Amid reports of widespread hardship and human rights abuses, the priority must be the health and welfare of the North Korean people. I can imagine the beloved leader sort of going, going a bundle oh, I'm, on that, I'm told he's a dear leader, not beloved. Oh, well, he's probably beloved to his, his mates <laughs> who actually said we actually produce the thing you want. I think the, the, the particularly important thing of this is that uh, there is a sense, isn't there, that although everybody, including the United Nations, have said, listen, you shouldn't be doing this and you should be signing up for the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, uh, there is actually nothing that can practically be done until you understand, and even this is a long shot, you understand what the North Koreans actually want, mm. apart from developing Timothy. a weapon like that. And that is recognition and that's distinction as they talk about it. Is that, is that it, them. Timothy? Do you agree, Timothy Stafford? It's, it's all about recognition. Well, I think there are two points. The first is, yes, there's a political uh, aspect and dimension to this, which is that the North Koreans want to be treated as a very serious player in their part of the world. They want direct negotiations with the United States, direct negotiations with China. Kim Jong-un's not yet been invited to Beijing, which is quite a humiliation, and the, the North Koreans want to be taken more seriously. And the assessment that's been made is that by conducting destabilizing activities such as this, they can improve their status in world affairs by making themselves more priority. Now, that's the political dimension. There is, of course, a defense dimension, which is the North Koreans are largely paranoid about the prospect of external attack and have therefore made the, the decision that producing more significant nuclear capability will uh, ensure that they can deter any such action. All right, Timothy Stafford, thank you for your time today. That's Timothy Stafford from the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Christopher, before we go uh, this week, we should reflect on the fact that uh, Honecamp in Germany, it's all over, it's gone back to the Germans. That's right, 70 years.
70 years. The, it's, in fact, it's the, um, it's the training ground, which, is, which, which was really after, after World War II, when uh, 11 Armoured Division sort of took it over in 45. Mm. Uh, 70, I can't remember what it is now, I think it's something like 74,000 acres, biggest training ground in, in Western Europe. What will the Germans be doing with it now? Well, they're putting 414 Panzer uh, uh, headquarters there. That's only a battalion size. But it continues to be a training ground. And, you know, we're not just, just pushing off. Uh, it's tri-service training there as well. And so it will continue to be a training ground. But after 70 years, about time to hand it back. Mm. What's your tip for next week? Uh, my tip for next week is, is something which people don't look about uh, look very much. I think it's going to be an announcement, certainly by next week, that the, the 1994 uh, Criminal Justice Act is going to be amended and it won't be impossible to be a gay in the services anymore. And that's going to be the amendment to the 1994 Criminal Justice Act. And that will happen, I think, next week. OK, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can download this programme as a podcast and you can follow us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. Until next week, thanks for listening and goodbye from me, Kate Chabot. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.